Welcome to the Matthew Moran Podcast. Here you will find a series of in-depth conversations with the world's best nature photographers, filmmakers, conservationists, editors, writers, and publishers. You will get an insight into the lives of creative professionals and industry experts, what goes on in their minds, how they approach their work, and how they make it pay. The podcast also looks at the role that photography and filmmaking plays in helping to raise awareness about the global plight of species. And despite the depressing statistics, we look for solutions at what we can all do to contribute to conservation. All my guests give up their precious time and are incredibly generous of spirit. So this is my chance to share these conversations with you. So sit back, relax and enjoy. Today, my guest is Will Barard-Lucas. Will is a British wildlife photographer who got hooked on East African wildlife at a young age after spending much of his childhood in Tanzania. His fascination with the natural world kept him going back and his entrepreneurial spirit drove him to build his own camera traps to get as close as he could to potentially dangerous animals such as rhinos and lions. He also invented Beetlecam, a small remote control buggy that enables him to get a fresh ground level perspective with a wide angle lens. And Will shares some great stories about the trials and tribulations. But like all his work, the perseverance is what elevates the pictures and the results have been incredible. Just have a look at the links on the podcast page on my site to see some stunning images he captured of a black leopard in Kenya last year. We also talk about the early days of Beetlecam, founding his company Camtraptions, who create and sell a whole range of camera trap equipment worldwide, his book projects, finding time for it all, and much more. I hope you enjoy it. Please share it as far and wide as you can. Here's the show. We're here in your office, Will, in, um, are we in Aylesbury? I've uh, Beaconsfield. Beaconsfield. Yeah, okay. not far from Aylesbury. There's the problem with um, <laughs> with driving and just relying on Google Maps. You kind of forget. Close enough. Close enough. <laughs> Where Same <you're> county. <laughs> but I've just been given a um, a tour of Will's museum of um, wow inventions and uh, beaten up cameras. Beaten up cameras. It's been such a treat. Really exciting to see and just to give you a bit of flavour of Will's office. It's a, a well, I'd say it's very organized, very clean. Oh, it's not always like this. <laughs> is that because I was coming? <laughs> it's because I just had to renew the lease. So they inspected the office, which forced me to uh, to uh, tidy. Brilliant. <laughs> it was a bit of an undertaking. Well, it's a great space. And I'm seeing lots of what look like specialist tools for adapting and inventing beetle cams, camera traps, and um, other, other, other great things that Will's been working on for many many years we'll get more into that yeah all this clutter is the reason i got kicked out of the house and had to get my <laughs> office in the first place yeah i can see why but um yeah thank you so much for taking the time no problem thanks to- i'm a fan of the podcast so it's great to be here that was great to discover yeah when i met you last year at yeah. wildlife photographer of the year that you'd been listening so um yeah you're on and actually it's great to have someone like you on this podcast um, who has been, you know, working as a wildlife photographer for well? I mean, how long? How many years have you been doing it now? Um, so I got into wildlife photography back in two thousand and three ish, and built it up to a point where I left my job to do it full time in two thousand and ten. So yeah, like twelve years. Um, what, what was your job? So when I first got into photography, I was still at uni. After that, I then became an accountant at PwC in London for three and a half years. I qualified as an accountant, and at that point. You know, I always did that sort of 
knowing that one day I'd do my own thing. I didn't know what. Um, so yeah, accountancy sort of keeps your options open. And then I qualified and that's something that you've then always got to fall back on if, if things don't work out. So I thought that was the time. Um, it was actually the year we got married. So I got married a week later was my last day. Uh, no, a week before I got married was my last day as an accountant. And since then, I've been a sort of semi-employed photographer. <laughs> but uh, yeah, fortunately, I haven't had to go back to the accountancy. Yeah, that's great. Well, I mean, it's it's been in the research that I've been looking at of you over the last uh, couple of weeks, it's been really great watching you know, some of your early videos and the development of, of not only your photography, but you as an inventor, I guess. Yeah. Um, and is that something that you were doing a lot as a kid? Were you into making things and, and exploring and experimenting yeah. and also failing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as a kid, I was always creating stuff out of Lego and not, not following the instructions, you know, always just riffing and, and building my own things. So I've done yeah, build things like tree houses and stuff. I definitely, I enjoy being creative that way. Um, but I never sort of got into photography wanting to apply that side of, of who I am, but sort of, it just came out naturally really. Like as I started to want to take pictures where my ability to maybe get close to the animals was limited, you know, it just came naturally to me to you know, invent something to do that for me. So yeah, it's sort of those two sort of interests, photography and that inventive side have been quite uh, you know, mutually beneficial, I guess. Yeah, and I can see how it obviously really works very well with wildlife, but I was interested in why wildlife and, and why that style yeah. of photography when you got into it? Well, so the wildlife and the interest in nature came from well before I got into photography. So when I was little, a uh, young boy, I was very fortunate to uh, live in Tanzania for three and a half years. So <clears throat> those are pretty much my earliest memories are from that time. And it was obviously a very formative stage in my life. And so ever since then, uh, being someone who's lived in Africa and been on safari was a big part of my identity as you know a child growing up. And uh, I always had that interest in the natural world. And then photography came along much later. Yeah, with the advent of digital, uh, that's when I got into photography. And very quickly, those two interests in nature and photography just came together really and so again it was not intentional it was just uh, this sort of meshing together of my interests did you did you shoot any film ever so i did have a film camera but never got into photography at that stage like i could see the appeal but just the you know my photos are rubbish and i having that that uh, sort of gap between taking the photo and seeing how it ended up i just never progressed you know the the cost of film put me off and so yeah it was something i sort of could appreciate good photography uh, but I was never going to progress until I got that digital camera and could then just sit with my subject and keep experimenting until I sort of captured it roughly the way I wanted. Um, so then at that point, it really skyrocketed my sort of interest and enthusiasm for photography. But yeah, it was definitely a, a product of the digital era. And that's amazing, isn't it? Because the timing of these things, you think if you were you know, just two or three years younger, yeah. You probably would have done a lot more in film just because the quality of yeah. digital. Or I just might not have got into photography. I might have left university having not picked up a you know photography properly, not had the time to get into it, and it might never have happened. So I was sort of right there at the forefront. I was at university, you know, had these long summer holidays, was able to sort of backpack and stuff, just as digital cameras were getting good and affordable. And uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, lucky timing. Yeah, and that's great. I mean, it's something that I always talk about and I sound like a disgruntled older photographer you know starting on film and going through that pain of yeah. shooting rolls and rolls and not seeing them for weeks on end but I always celebrate 
digital photography, not only for what it's given us creatively, but how it did really democratize exactly. photography. So, um, you know, people were able to afford, you know, good quality cameras for, for a lower cost. It sort of made it less yeah. elite. Uh, yeah. And just the cost of yeah taking, you know, to take 2000 photos to, yeah, and it doesn't cost you anything. Whereas with film, it was just prohibitive when you were in that learning phase. So yeah, it, that was the key thing. Yeah. And, and were you, did you have anyone early on that you were looking at or trying to replicate and, you know, going down, you know, sort of, I think in the kind of late nineties, early two thousands, it was photography was very much a long lens game, particularly yeah. for wildlife. And you've become a real specialist using wide angle. We can talk a little bit more about that later with camera traps, but was, was there anyone that, that you looked at in particular? I don't, I can't remember photography wise. Like my mum was into photography from the film days. And so she was, I was sort of always exposed to photography through her. And then, you know, I was an avid sort of digester of natural history programs. Obviously, you know, David Attenborough, BBC um, natural history unit programs. And so I think, I think those two things were my biggest influence. Obviously there were things like National Geographic magazine, but I was looking at them at you know, looking at the pictures and that, not really knowing who the photographers were still at that stage. I think it was only when I really started to get into it that I then started to uh, follow these things more closely. Yeah. And did you, did you go, I mean, obviously you had this relationship with, with Africa and Tanzania and going on safari and mm. was your quest in the first days to shoot with a long lens or did you already sort of start thinking about how can I get closer with field craft and technology yeah, and no, stuff was, like that? It was definitely at first I was like, all right, I need a longer lens if I'm going to get photos <laughs> like this. Yeah. So I think to start with, you're just trying to, yeah, see, you see these good photos in magazines and then trying to figure out what do I need to be able to take photos like that. So yes, it was very much a long lens and, and yeah, holidays to these exotic places to sort of try and start to you know, build up photos like that. And I guess then figuring out once you sort of get the basics, then it's sort of figuring out, you know, maybe trying to make work a bit different, but that certainly came a lot later. Yeah. And, and, and your journey up until that, that point. And of course, when you're one of the things that's, we often talk about on this, in this podcast and actually st still today, um, you know, is trying to make a living out of doing what we love doing. Yeah. And did you know, early on that that's, I mean, obviously you, you know, you, you're a qualified accountant, you could have had a very comfortable life. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that that job is, is easy, but certainly trying to make a living out of taking images of animals isn't. So, Did yeah. you have kind of reality, reality checks with that early on? Um, I've always been really entrepreneurial. And in fact, through university, something that took up much more of my time than photography even was building like web businesses and stuff. And I always knew, as I said, that I'd do my own thing one day. And I thought it would just be, you know, make some website that I could sell for millions or something. And so <laughs> that was sort of my goal a lot of, you know, in those early years. But then as I built these web businesses, they sort of, in the end, always kind of fizzled just because I lost interest. And I realized that whatever I did, it had to be something I was passionate about, would do for free anyway. And yeah, something... Yeah, where it was, I think to, to continue that interest long term, once you know, once we got over that exciting building phase, so I sort of, I guess, recalibrated and realised, yeah, it's not trying to pick the most pros profitable niche or whatever. It's finding what I want to do and then figuring out how to make it work. But fortunately, all that entrepreneurial experience played in well in that you know when I became a photographer, 
uh, you know, I experimented with so many different ways to try and make a, you know, to pay, make it pay really from, you know, I've sold all sorts of things from, you know, courses and, and web advertising, you name it, I tried it. And so I love that experimenting side. And obviously in, in a competitive niche like photography, where a lot of people are willing to do it for free, it's, is quite a hard space to work in but because for me it never did feel like work it was always what i wanted to be doing anyway uh, i think that was the key and that's what allowed me to stick with it you know for now two decades and you know whatever you do it's perseverance and sticking with it long term that really is what pays dividends in the end and so yeah that's that's i guess the realization i came to eventually <laughs> yeah and it's great to hear because uh, you know with anyone listening to these podcasts over the years it's you know that perseverance the dedication sticking to it yeah. is it's uh, often you know when i run workshops for example i might get someone say to me oh you know i don't have a creative eye for example and it's actually not really that it's actually yeah. hard work yeah. and actually going back to locations over and over again and making tons of mistakes and yeah that's how i guess that is what makes the difference between success and failure whatever you call success and that doesn't necessarily mean making a living from it if you really enjoy it of course that's great um but you clearly had that passion just to mm. keep you going even though yeah. you'd tried all these ways of monetizing it just yeah. keeping going and really enjoying it seems to be exactly and then it's a case of when you find something that works spotting that and then doubling down on it yeah that was something i really enjoyed uh listening to uh about about your ted talk because yeah. i think when you when you're saying it yourself as a photographer and as a tutor as a mentor hearing other photographers talking about you know finding a subject yeah. double down on it going to town and, and also making that uh, the access to that subject is, is very important, making mm. the subject uh, accessible. Yeah, and I think it's applicable to anything you're doing. That's what I tried to do with that talk was not make it just applicable to photography. You know, whatever you're doing, and you, yeah, just uh, that power of perseverance is, is really what's key. Yeah, for sure. And so can you remember when you first started experimenting um, with wildlife photography and you know, throwing away the long lens yeah. and thinking about getting out the wide angle and how you were going to achieve different images? Because also one of the, the limiting things, I guess, about going on photography trips to Africa is you know, mostly you're in a vehicle, mostly you're you know, constrained to yeah. certain roads. You know, how do you go about trying to get that special access or you know you use yeah. things like you've like you've invented with the beetle cam and permissions and all of those yeah, yeah. you know those are kind of issues outside of actually the te technological issues of getting these images yeah did how did how did that kind of journey begin do you remember yeah so um it's i guess it kind of happened uh, serendipitously in that it happened it was around 2008 2009 i was doing a lot of photography photography with my brother back then and um, we were just yeah looking for ways to capture something a bit different, and we did a trip uh, to photograph meerkats in Botswana. Yeah, in Botswana, and these are one of the few creatures in Africa you can crawl up to and get close to, and they were quite habituated. And so you know we were experimenting using wide-angle lens, getting close and trying to show them in their environment, and instantly fell in love with this perspective. Uh, the next year we managed to go to the Falkland Islands and kind of do the same thing with penguins, which, you know, they have no fear of people. And if you lie on the path or whatever, they'll hop right up to your lens. So again, using this wide angle perspective and straight away it resonated with us. And, you know, we just dreamed of doing it with more and more creatures and species. And then it was figuring out how, yeah, how would you do that with, an, with a lion or an elephant? And it was quite an obvious solution for me, you know, Let's try sticking it on a remote control buggy, not knowing at all whether it was going to work or not. 
uh, but figured in order to try and get something different, it was worth trying it and taking a risk. Um, so just it was a very basic creation, the first Beetle Cam, just a, it was kind of like a robot uh, base, uh, which the camera was bolted onto and uh, got in touch with the lodge um, in the concession we were going to and you know, found out, yeah, can we bring this along and give it a go? And they were happy. So uh, yeah, just took it out there and had no idea what to expect, whether the animals would run away at the first sight of it, whether they would destroy it straight away, but figured it was worth trying out. And uh, on day one, started to get photos of elephants that really were proving the concept and uh, it was very exciting. And then day two, perhaps got a bit uh, carried away and tried it with lions and that didn't go so well. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I guess I've told the story before, but yeah, this lion, she, the, as soon as she saw this thing moving through the grass, straight up, clamped her jaws around it and ran off with it. And that's one of the things I showed you in the museum was the camera that she uh, destroyed that day. It's but, amazing. Yeah, I've seen the evidence of the <laughs> of the canines yeah. sunk deep into the camera. But fortunately, the memory card did survive and got a couple of photos of her approaching that when they when I showed them and um, uh, published them, they were widely you know reshared and published and things, and it really proved the concept that this was a perspective that uh, captured people's attention. Really, it was a bit different and. Um, yeah, ever since then, it was actually a couple of years before I summoned up the courage to try Beetlecam again, but did try it again. The results really built on what I'd done previously. Uh, and ever since then, Beetlecam has kind of just been this tool that I revisit again and again through different projects to give a, this more you know, intimate perspective. Um, yeah. And you're forgetting you actually the second time well, when you revisit it, you decided to put a housing on top of it. Oh yes, of, of course. <laughs> try and learn from this. <laughs> learn from what went wrong last time. So yes, Betacam is now on like the sixth generation. And uh, yeah, the first improvement was obviously put a, put a housing on. Uh, that housing actually was something they could get their claws into and then still flip it over. So then the next version was a much uh, smoother housing and then making it stronger and then the latest version um, is actually something I had finally had time to revisit during the first lockdown. Um, it was something I'd been meaning to do for ages, but basically update Betacam for this mirrorless generation of cameras. So being able to support, basically use a much smaller camera um, and make the whole thing just stronger and more robust. And so the new Betacam, yeah, I created in 2020 now, and uh, I've been using it a lot uh, in my my new projects that's awesome yeah. it's so exciting it's really wonderful and again i mean i was thinking maybe we could take just some snapshots of it and we can put this part of the post just oh for sure yeah so yeah, so yeah. people can see what we're talking about yeah, as yeah. well definitely. um it was definitely the, the the most exciting thing coming into will's office and, and seeing seeing the museum and, and the development of this mm -hmm. but this is something that you were always thinking about your own photography rather than yeah. developing all of my creations i'd say have started from a particular photo i want to take close-up wide angle or photo of this particular species and then figuring out what I need to do to get that and if I need to build something just going ahead and, and uh, making it yeah. happen so yeah I've created a lot of like I guess you'd call them prototypes over the years to try and get certain shots that I've envisaged that I know would be achievable and that are something a bit different that yeah. maybe it's not been done so much before but you have been approached and they have been used in natural history tv yeah. making is that right so right from the beginning with Betocam. Yeah, I then started getting other photographers who perhaps weren't so inclined to build these things themselves coming to me and asking for, you know, can I build one of them for them? And so I saw that there was a market. I had no idea how big it was. And so started small uh, building, you know, the old beetle cam here and there for people. Um, 
But I always thought, yeah, the opportunities to use Beetlecam are pretty limited. There's only so many people that actually want to drive their camera and put it in harm's way in front of a, a lion. And so I knew that camera traps were a much more you know, broader market and there was much more you know, applications for that. And so that's then what I ended up focusing on is um, turning my camera trap that I developed again for myself, but turning them into a product for, yeah. for other and, photographers. And when you developed the first Beetle Cam, did camera trap? I actually don't have no idea when they, you know, the early yeah. generations existed. So there were early camera traps, like people like Nick Nichols had been using camera traps for ages, Steve Winter, but they were so difficult to use and fiddly to set up and unreliable that basically there was, you know, these, these huge hurdles to actually getting anything from camera traps. And I'd sort of tried on and off and always um yeah come up empty empty-handed and i just knew that camera traps could be so much easier to use and by making a camera trap easier to use um it would just open up op you know opportunities for people to to yeah, be creative and not worry so much about the technology and so i created a camera trap that was based on the passive infrared sensor that's used in a trail camera you know trail cameras are ultimate in ease you just turn them on stick them on it tree and they're good to go and so i wanted to create a dslr style camera trap uh, system that was you know as close to that as possible and so keeping them as simple as possible and gradually over the years we've added features um and perhaps in less simple but hmm. um but uh you know sticking with that ethos of you know if if it's easy to set up people will be motivated to set up more often set up more you know if you're gone on holiday and you're somewhere for just four days if a camera trap something that takes you know, five hours to set up, you're just not going to do it. But hopefully having something that you could set up in 20 minutes um, just means that people will be mo more motivated to do it. And so that was that was the, my aim in creating what's now the Camtraption system. Yeah, and it's a great system. I own one. I bought one last year Thank and you. I did I did get my setup down to an hour and a half from five <laughs> yeah. hours. So it then pretty good. you get it down and then you start getting fancy with lighting and then of course. The time climbs again. So yeah, now these things do take a long yeah. time to set up. But that's often being... That's often the creative side now, you know, figuring out how you want to light the scene. And that's, I guess, the stuff that's, uh, that the technology hopefully frees you up to do is yeah. just to concentrate on being creative and not having to worry about um, the technology so much. So what, were, what was it in your mind that switched from going from making things for yourself to enhance your own photography, to elevate the picture, to then, I mean, it's already enough of a headache. So then thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to manufacture this thing. It's a completely different, you know, you're going into yeah. a different business and the issues of, first of all, manufacturing, fulfillment, shipment. Yeah, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about of headaches, yeah. <laughs> a lot of headaches. Um, I think for me, when I got into photography and particularly starting to make a living from it, I could always see that the writing was on the wall for, I guess, making a living by just focusing on being a photographer and producing images. You know, image licensing revenues were plummeting all these opportunities just to sell photos. And there was at the same time, this flood of photographers coming in, uh, a lot of them just doing it for the fun and happy to give away their work because they never had any ambition of making it professional, but taking professional standard pictures. So right from the beginning, I think I recognized that the opportunity in being a photographer was in creating products and services that catered to this wave of new photographers, seeing all of them as my customers and not my competition. And, you know, a lot of people have taken this approach and run workshops and photo tours and photo safaris, you know, as wildlife photographers, photo safaris would probably be the most common way people are making a living. Uh, but, and I dabbled in that and, um, you know, selling eBooks and e-courses and things uh, to educate these people. You know, as I say, these people 
they're all looking for ways to either spend their money on equipment or learning. And so, um, yeah, I knew this was my market. Um, and it was then finding out, you know, figuring out what the product was going to be. And so when I had people naturally coming to me and asking me to build equipment for them and you know, be, being in the industry and seeing that there was nothing out there that was working how I thought it should work, you know, it seemed uh, obviously quite an obvious thing to try. And I started very small, you know, I didn't invest a lot in the first sensors, basically made them as simple and basic as they needed to be to get the job done. And, um, yeah, and just started selling and see how it went. And so that was very, yeah, I think starting simple and rather, you know, not going in and starting with everything set up, you know, I had this basic minimum viable product, set up a Shopify store and then, yeah, figure out the shipping, obviously, as, it, as, <laughs> as yeah, that's obviously a slightly painful thing. But um, I, in, on that side, like I, I've... I, I'm a proponent of either doing soft launches where you don't do a lot of marketing at the front so that you do just, you start small, just word of mouth, shipping a few units at a time, and then you learn gradually. Or if you want to really go all out and do the big launch, doing it as a pre-launch where you can then drip out the sales in your own time and check that things are working in terms of the shipping and stuff gradually. Like there's nothing more stressful than having sold a load of things that people are expecting straight away and then encountering these issues with the shipping and stuff. So definitely starting slow rather than trying to bite off more than you can chew straight away um, is how I approach really the whole start of Camp Traptions. And then it's just been a gradual, yeah, learning and growing process since then. And you know, every now and then you do have a curveball like Brexit, as we were talking about, and trying to ship now suddenly to Europe is <laughs> overnight became almost impossible for about six months. But yeah, e dealing with each each thing as it comes. Yeah, that that in in its own is like a, a, a wildlife photography project. I think you're right. You do have to have that special mindset when yeah. you're going to do that business opportunity with something that in a, in a way essentially is generous. You know, you want to share your work and your ideas and get yeah. other people. And it's a nice, you know, because I think often wildlife photographers can be criticized and I think quite rightly so of keeping their locations and, and yeah. their, their place, their special places secret. Um, yeah. But ultimately it's- Well, it's, yeah, and so for some photographers that might make sense. But for me, it's always, as I say, other photographers have always been, yeah, they're my market really. So yeah. I've always been incredibly transparent and open about how I take my photos, what I'm using to take my photos. Um, and, you know, I think that's one of the ways I was able to attract, you know, a following of photographer, other photographers to which I could then pitch my products to uh, is by being very open about all that stuff. Yeah. Brilliant. Great stuff. Yeah. Um, and of course it wasn't only, um, camera traps, you, uh, were a, an early inventor of drones. And I, again, I watched one of these videos of, of you talking about this quite openly and the struggles that, that you had. And it was just staggering to me to think that you know, basically drones didn't really exist in yeah. the way they do now, obviously, but it was just only in 2012. So yeah. you were developing and making your own prototypes and the, to carry heavy DSLRs oh, and man. trying to get stable images. And I look back on those devices, they were lethal and crazy and expensive. And, but it was so much fun. Like when I saw that first clip ever of, of footage shot from a drone, it was like oh, unbelievable. And uh, yeah, it appealed to my creative side, building these things and the technology and figuring all that out. Um, but yeah, the it was quite a painful thing. Like the first <laughs> drone I built literally flew. It, it was you know quite a, a sizable investment in terms of just the parts and time to build it. And literally it flew 20 seconds 
before I wrote it off, crashing it into a tree. <laughs> and uh, it was then like a year before I got <laughs> could bring myself to build another drone. Uh, but um, but yeah, obviously you can see yeah the impact drones have had now yeah. today, and you know clearly uh, it was worth uh, uh, sort of figuring out. But yeah, I, I I very much focused on trying to make my drones quiet so that they could be used to, to film wildlife without dis disturbing animals. But, um, you know, I, I sort of, after I'd been doing it a couple of years, number one, there was all these big players like DJI who were, you know, frankly crushing it in terms of what they were producing. Uh, so, yeah, I was never going to compete with them. But then also drones, number one, the, the uh, perspective was becoming much more commonplace. And for me, whenever something becomes kind of commonplace, it's an instant turn off for me and I want to <laughs> go on to the next thing. Um, and then also, yeah, the potential for harassing wildlife. It's just something I didn't really want to be associated with. Um, even if you do it responsibly, people can't look at that footage and know that you were being responsible. Yeah, sure. So I was just like, yeah. I've just had this image in my head of like, you know, when you see those old black and white movies of, of people trying to invent planes yeah. and fly and crashing into trees yeah. and those you, early days. You don't want to know how many drones I crashed, how many <laughs> GoPros I killed <laughs> in, uh, in, uh, drone crashes yeah but, uh, but yeah. you were primarily building drones for stills is that right or both yeah so i started i've always stills have always been my thing and so i think that was the other thing about drones is i built them you know to take stills with but it was always the footage from a drone that was for me what was magical and so i think drones probably uh, are of more value to filmmakers than stills photographers there are other ways you can get an aerial perspective with stills that you yeah, that you can't really match with video. Yeah. Um, so, and yeah, presumably the early cameras as well didn't. You know, when you were doing, when you were building yeah. these, they didn't have that high quality video capability. Yeah. So all the video I shot with drones was on a GoPro. Right. Even if yeah, I could fly something bigger than that. Yeah, because they weren't. It wasn't mirrorless in those days. Um, but yeah, the video is always what I, um, yeah, took from the drone footage, and so I guess the culmination of my drone efforts were this video I made of the great migration in the Serengeti. You know, I don't know if anyone had really done the Serengeti migration with a drone before that. And it was incredible footage. Um, but yeah, it, in the end, it's not exactly where I wanted to go with my photography and video isn't, isn't what I do. So yeah, it was a sort of phase, but, uh, then I returned to, to, uh, after, after I sort of drew a line under drones, returned to beetle cam and realized there was still a lot further I could take that. So that's a good skill as well, isn't it? To yeah. know when you're kind of, even though you have this incredible determination to make things work, it's, also, it's yeah. also good to know when to leave it alone and yeah. move on. I mean, on. we've only got so much time and so you, yeah, you do have to be ruthless with ideas and with uh, things. And yeah, if I'd start with drones, I'm sure I'd be doing cool stuff today with them, but yeah, also recognizing what it is you want to be doing and what it, you know, and, and, uh, following that yeah as a compromise i guess between persevering and uh, knowing when to pivot exactly and actually on that pivoting you just mentioned that stills is you know something that you were always interested in doing mm. and continue to do and i was curious about video because obviously the capability of dslrs you know producing yeah. 4k and now you've got mirrorless cameras producing 8k video that temptation of you know must be there with things like beetle cam or maybe drones yeah. again i don't you know don't want to put any ideas in your head of going back to <laughs> sounds like you won't anyway <laughs> but um yeah is is is, is video something that you uh, are con certainly, consciously avoiding now well no, i've certainly dabbled in it yeah and i've done enough of it to know that i really don't enjoy it that much <laughs> and it's not what my strength is and i 
the way I feel about it is it's very hard to do both properly. You always, you're either doing neither properly, neither stills and video properly, or one is very much subservient to the other, in which case, you know, you're not doing it properly. So, um, I, and I also don't see video, you know, replacing stills. Like there's always, for me, stills have their own place that can never be replaced by beats, uh, by, um, by video, you know, obviously books, magazines, prints for walls, but also online, like the way you can scroll down the newsfeed and instantly digest a photo, which you just can't do with the video because you have to let it play for five, 10 seconds to even see what it's about. Um, so yeah, I don't think stills will ever be replaced by video. And as I say, I don't think I can do video properly if I'm also trying to do stills. So for me, uh, the way I've started to approach it more recently is collaborating. So I'll team up with a filmmaker they can focus 100% of their efforts and creativity on the video. I can focus 100% of my efforts on the stills, make the stills as good as I possibly can make them and do it that way. And uh, that's the way I'm, I'm sort of going to approach this hybridization of, uh, of the two media uh, going forward. And, you know, the, the filmmaker I do work with also shoots Sony. And so we share lenses. We often share you know, cameras, but, you know, he's got his video hat on and I've got my stills hat on. And for me, that's what works. I, I, trying to do both is <laughs> yeah, a nightmare. But, you know, video is very valuable, particularly for showing the behind the scenes of a project, like a project that the sort of projects I do that's just stills. It's kind of only showing half the story and you're really only, I guess, uh, taking half the cake because the behind the scenes of that stills project is also just as interesting to people. There's just as much opportunity to use that sort of content. Um, and so showing that and particularly with video, um, is very valuable and certainly something that I do try and, uh, if I'm on my own, force myself, to, if I can, to, to shoot some of that behind the scenes video, but as I say, team up with a, a filmmaker to, yeah. to do that as well. I think that's good advice. It's, it's you know, it's, it's basically a, a case of stick to what you're really good at. Yeah. And also, I mean, you know, again, I'd encourage anyone to go on, on YouTube and look up Will because there's so many good behind the scenes stuff and you're very generous. There's a bit on there. Yeah. yeah of just showing, <laughs> um, you know, the trials and tribulations and also just how, how this stuff set up and, and, and like you said, with the idea of contraptions, how, yes, you can go down the route of it being incredibly difficult um to try and achieve you know um hard to get pictures in terms of lighting but i mean essentially it's it's a it, it, you know these camera traps work at the, at the same technology for those who don't know is pretty much like a security light right and instead of sending that signal to turn a light on it's telling your camera to yeah. to fire the shutter exactly um so yeah no there's some brilliant brilliant behind the yeah. scenes stuff um I know you've talked a lot about your your leopard project, but for then I'm sure will be people who who haven't um, heard about it. Listen to this, so you know we could kind of distill that. And and again, I'd <coughs> encourage everyone to go and have a look at uh, Will's TED talk. But um, can you tell us the beginnings of of, of that story? And yeah. and um, Will's got a, a lovely book out, which we've had a brief chat before this podcast, which is another in a, in a sense advantage of the lockdown. You're able to put this have time to put this book together, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I can't wait. I haven't actually seen it myself. I can't wait to have a look because one of one of the things I was curious about is that wow, how do you make a whole book? Oh, well, uh, <laughs> actually, a lot of writing. Yeah, <laughs> it's a whole story leading up to it. So. That's why I needed so much time because writing doesn't come quick to me. And so I did have a loss of months in the, in the first lockdown to write the book. Um, and it is, yeah, the story of everything that led up to this Black Leopard project. And really, for me, it did feel like this culmination of everything I'd been working towards it. On the one hand, 
it was all this technology and techniques I'd been developing to photograph wildlife at night. Really, that had been a big focus for me for three or four years preceding the Black Leopard was the low lightability of digital cameras was really opening up this whole frontier of nocturnal wildlife photography. And that was something that was very exciting to me because when you start photographing at night, you've got this blank canvas to experiment with lighting, to experiment with exposing, you know, using ambient moonlight or twilight or stars. There's so much cool creative stuff you could do, which was really exciting to me and something I'd been playing with already. So I'd been you know, playing with these techniques. I'd been developing equipment that would allow me to, um, take these sort of photographs, the camera traps uh, being um, the main one. And then I'd also started working on these long-term projects um, where I'd really based myself in a country for a long time, set up my, my infrastructure there and just you know, revisit the same subject or place again and again as I built up a body of work. And by lucky coincidence, I uh, moved to Kenya, basically, moved to operating in Kenya. Um, and had just finished doing this long-term uh, project with the Savo Trust on the elephants in Savo. And so I'd just finished that. I had all my equipment and my setup in Kenya. Um, yeah, all these techniques for photographing animals at night. And that's when I heard, um, I got a, I was just on a phone call with a guide who mentioned that there was uh, a chance of seeing a black leopard up in this place in Laikipia mm-hmm. uh, in Kenya. And even before that, black leopards had been on my radar as pretty much the ultimate creature I'd love to photograph one day, but also a creature that it wasn't even a dream really because I knew the chances were so minimal, particularly in Africa, which is where I do all my stuff. Um, so when I heard it, you know, obviously my ears pricked up and I was like, I've got to, I've got to look into this a bit more. <laughs> um, and it, it always felt like quite a long shot. You know, this was an animal. I got in touch with the the guides and the, the camp owner um, at like Hippie Wilderness Camp about you know, how often were they seeing this black leopard? And you know it was something they might see a few times a year on night drives. So it was there, but knowing where it was hanging out and you know, how I could go about photographing it, it seemed- And they have such big ranges. Yeah, well, they didn't even know where its territory was, or, you know, how old it was or anything like that. So it was, but it, you know, as far as I was concerned, there was a black leopard there and I had to go and just see, see if I could get a photo. And I thought I might be setting up trail cameras you know, I had well, like 10 trail cameras out with me. And I was thinking, yeah, I might spend a year moving these around just to try and figure out if there's a path it might be using fairly regularly or something, and then setting up my DSLR camera trap. Um, so I thought that might be how it went. But anyway, went out there, took all my camera traps. I already had these some high quality DSLR camera traps um, from Savo that I'd been using. So I took it all up there. And, um, and, I was introduced to basically the neighboring landowner, uh, this lady called Louisa, and she was the one that had really been seeing this black leopard uh, much more frequently. And it turned out that it was this young black leopard, this young male that was basically still young enough that he was in his mother's territory. And actually it was quite a small territory, basically centered around where she was living. And so her and her uh, security guards, a range of people, uh, were seeing it quite regularly. How how regularly? Do you you um, remember? I mean, they would... If you stayed, it's, it was quite a nocturnal creature. Uh, they weren't seeing it a lot during the day, but at night they were, as particularly when it was very dry, there was only a, f- a few areas where the leopard could come for water. One being the landowner's swimming pool and one this little uh, spring just up from there. And so I think quite regularly at night, the security people uh, were seeing it, you know, maybe, uh, maybe a couple of times a, a week. And uh, because it was young, it just wasn't straying that far from this area. So, you know, 
I, that was obviously sounded like a dream for a, for a mm-hmm. camera trap project. Uh, but the thing was, they reckon this leopard was about 18 months, and that was the sort of age where it would leave its mother's territory, sort of get kicked off by this a stronger male that would want to mate with the mother and have more cubs. So I was like, have I arrived too late? You know, they'd seen it a couple of weeks ago. Is it still there or has it? have I just missed it? So it was pretty uh, nerve-wracking. But um, long story short, set up the camera traps, and within within the first week, I'd got my first photos. Wow. That first trip was was two weeks long, and I got a handful, yeah four or five decent photos um and that from there like you know while i knew where this leopard was it was an opportunity to to keep working it yeah as i said double down on it while i could exactly and so yeah just i had all these shots in mind that i wanted to try and capture and so then it was a case of while he was around just trying to tick off as many of those possible and and uh, it ended up being a year where i was pretty heavily focused on that one project, uh, moving camera traps around, setting them up, ticking off these shots. Um, and those are the photos that then form the basis for the book. So when you've got something like this, this dream opportunity yeah. that's unexpected, and I don't know whether you're about to come home. I mean, you've got, uh, by that point, did you have two small children? And yeah. 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 How do you then negotiate that time and childcare and your wife's a doctor? Well, and- yeah. <laughs> so they came out with me for a lot of it. Like Brilliant. we were able to spend a month at Easter out there, two months in the summer out there. And then between those trips, it was little trips on my own. But the great thing with camera traps is actually only need a few days to set them up or move them around. And then it's a case of leaving them running for another two months or, or whatever. So I was able to keep those camera traps running constantly for that year uh, while still actually spending quite a bit of time at home in the UK. Because yeah, at the end of the day with camera traps, the longer you leave them for, the more you get. And so it is a case of, uh, you know, I had them all set up with like solar panels and stuff to to basically run indefinitely. And I had one of Louise's Ascari's, a guy called Patrick. Um, I sort of trained him how to keep the lenses clean and stuff. And so they just kept running that whole time. And uh, yeah, that's the only way to, yeah, particularly some of those shots, like the star shot that I really wanted with the leopard under the stars. Yeah, that was basically five cameras set up for that shot for about six months before eventually the the leopard came by at the right time of night and looking the right way <laughs> for that shot to come together. But yeah, it's just the numbers game. More camera traps. Of course. And what I love about that picture is, you know, you're not just content with getting the picture. You have to have a, be- a behind the scenes picture of you getting the picture. <laughs> yeah. That was that was just, yeah, I had the spare camera and rather than carting it back home, it was, it, that was actually an infrared camera. So I'd started by photographing the, the leopard with an infrared camera and invisible flashes because I didn't know how shy it was going to be. Quick, Pretty soon I discovered he didn't care at all about the white light but i had this infrared camera set up uh spare that i just set up for this behind the scenes so i often have a sensor trigger a couple of two or three cameras and then they all share the same lighting uh, because i might have one for example with that star shot if the moon had been up the star shot wouldn't work so i have one camera a bit higher that's then got the leopard against a backdrop but not the sky and so when the moon's up that that camera gets a photo that works and then i have a lower camera looking up which is the camera that works uh, the photo when the moon is down and then yeah it wasn't much just to add a third camera <laughs> to then shoot the behind the scenes but uh, yeah. yeah i love that because there is a behind the scenes photo of the exact yeah, millisecond the actual other photo was captured. it's incredible so it's yeah, quite nice it's, having that it, it really is and again it's that kind of generosity of showing your 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 methods and yeah. your, the, the ways and the efforts and also just seeing the gear and the setup and it, it I, I was thinking actually as you were talking about leaving these um, cameras running for many, for many months at a time, actually in a way is kind of going back to the film days. So there must, you know, the, oh, yeah. we, we lost the magic really of yeah. not knowing what we've got. And even though that was hugely frustrating, 
when you had that film processed yeah. and you're looking you know through your contact sheet there's this rush and i've certainly Definitely. i certainly well when i when i first got cam trapped last year um you know i've as as a newbie it's like wow you've just you know you're just so excited and then that does quickly wear off the it's disappointment like, yeah what's yeah. gone wrong yeah. the animal's in the wrong place it's not there something else has set it off yeah but that going back over and over again and then when you eventually do and i got a great shot which is in the fox book um is is that it's thrill. Like christmas it yeah. is isn't it when um, and, and, and can yeah. you describe that feeling well so my early days of camera trapping much like yours it sounds um you know I'd go for something. I'd set up a camera trap outside an aardvark burrow for like two nights and come back and be sure I'd got it and find nothing. And very quickly, you get that sense of hope and anticipation beaten out of you. <laughs> and uh, I came to basically have zero expectations when checking any cameras and then anything you do have is a bonus. Um, and so now leaving cameras much longer, I, I increase my chances. But yeah, I'm often not expecting much on these cameras. And particularly when I first got that Black Leopard photo, I'd already checked the other, I had five cameras set up, checked the other four with nothing on. And so I really had no expectations. And I almost could have flicked past the photo because this black animal in the black of night was basically, I, I, do, I don't know what I was expecting, but it was basically invisible. It was only its eyes and very, <laughs> I was flicking through sort of nonchalantly, uh, not expecting to find this leopard. Uh, just those two eyes fortunately made me pause and I and then obviously realized what I got. But um, yeah, I mean, that was, and it, and it's, I guess a moment that will never be matched in terms of how much that meant because yeah. it was so rare and such a stunning creature and something that I really honestly I don't think expected to achieve in a way. And that's brilliant yeah. and that's really great to hear because often when we do get images that we're satisfied with I would say it's probably a good word because I think we're always trying to achieve better yeah. as well. You can never get perfection. No. In, in so that was going to be my question. Yeah. You know, when, you know, now that it's done you've got this book and and it's not just that image there are lo other lovely images of this leopard yeah. you know what are the ways and you're particularly with the shot with the stars in the background yeah. the low angle would you think you know how could you improve that picture? oh there's always it can <laughs> always be better and i don't think i've taken a shot where i've looked at it and not seen something that could be better next time you know even if it's just lower iso and less noise or whatever it is or uh, slightly sharper stars or you know there's there's lots every photo as I say, has something that can be improved. And I think that's what I think maybe was an, a, a way in which I'd maybe plateaued. And then the way that I got beyond that plateau was realizing that when you've got the shot, you know, it might be the shot you're after, but it can always be improved. And if you keep working at it and keep trying to improve it and persevere, that is how you can sort of elevate your work to the next level. And so not ever being satisfied, I think, and always, you know, once you feel like you've maybe achieve the project maybe still sticking at it as i say doubling down on it and still pushing yourself to go further because that's when you're forced to maybe do stuff differently be more experimental take more risks because you've got the safe shots in the bag and that's what then pushes you i think to to get you know even better and so actually i would say since the book came out and um yeah the black leopard was still there i i still have some camera traps out there running and now they're just going for completely speculative you know, once in a, you know, <laughs> whatever thousand day type event might happen where, the, where everything comes together to get this shot I'm after. But, you know, there still is always, always better shots. So like the last uh, shot I was going for was like the leopard at twilight with the backdrop exposed and stuff. And it basically took a year, <laughs> it was a year during COVID where I couldn't get out there, but the camera track was running and uh, yeah, 
there's still other shots to tick off. And so now the Black Leopard, he's obviously much older now. He's four or five. And he's he's uh, expanded his range a lot. He covers a lot of different areas and kind of swings by where my camera traps are, like maybe once every month or two. Wow. So my odds are pretty low now yeah. that I get him. But there's still loads of spotty leopards around. I can't really <laughs> turn my nose up at them. So, uh, yeah. No, that's right. I loved it in your TED Talk when you talked about you, how it was, you, know, you couldn't be disappointed by getting a beautiful spotty leopard <laughs> yeah, in yeah. there. But <laughs> well, that particular spotty leopard was this big male. And whenever he was around, it would drive off the young of black male. So it was literally, if I was getting him, I knew I wasn't going to be able to get the black leopard until he <laughs> disappeared. So he was a very impressive specimen. And I got some really nice. Yeah, so when you look to those photos and you open, you know, you're scrolling through, you're going, oh my God, just get out of my photo. Beautiful, big, spotty leopard. Exactly. Amazing. Um, You talked a bit earlier about working with um, the the trust in Savo, the Mm -hmm. Elephant Trust. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you a bit about, um, you know, photography and and conservation. And, you know, it's something that we talk about a lot on the podcast. It's something that, you know, cannot be ignored now for for wildlife photographers. And, um, you know, there's obviously stuff up on your website about the work that you do and um, but yeah mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about um you know what what you hope to achieve and yeah. I, I i know that very much you know trying to elevate wildlife photography elevate the pictures that you're taking to kind of create that wow factor but of course it's always a problem like beyond that how do we create yeah. action and get people to love it and care For about sure. it and, and i think yeah if you can have a double purpose in your work when obviously producing work people want to look at but if it can have a conservation uh, benefit as well, then that's you know the ultimate aim. And so, yeah, for me, uh, partnering with conservationists is crucial, really, to the way I work and want to work going forwards. Um, yeah, conservationists need content just as much as everybody else in terms of images and footage for social media reports, for communicating what they're doing to the outside world. They can't exist in a silo. Um, just like you know, every other business or charity out there. So they need images. And um, and so, yeah, working with conservationists, really, for me, it's about going to them or sometimes being approached by them, but finding out exactly what it is they need and what their goals are and what I can do to basically support that as, you know, as best I possibly could. And then in return, you know, from them, it's, you know, it's not, I'm never really partnering with conservationists you know, trying to monetize that relationship, you know, expecting them to pay me. Really, what they can give me is access, and I can give them whatever it is they need, whether it's uh, yeah, just stills or whether it's something more. So, in the case of the Savo Trust, they were working to protect these big Tusker elephants in Savo, this huge area um, the size of Switzerland. And they, in this area, there's a handful of these big Tuskers, which would be defined as this uh, as any elephant with uh, tusks weighing over 100 pounds. And there's a few famous big tuskers in Hamburselli, for example, which are quite easy to see and well photographed. But Savo had some of these big tuskers that were in such remote areas. There weren't, you know, it was kilometers and kilometers to the nearest road even. So, and you, know, you can't off-road in the national park. So they're just tuskers that nobody was seeing and nobody was really photographing. But these are what they were trying to protect. And by protecting these big tuskers, in effect, keeping those areas secure, it was securing all you know, the area for all the elephants there and all the wildlife so yeah their, their goal was protecting these tuskers and in doing so protecting Savo basically but yeah communicating that to people and showing people what they were protecting um is hard without images and so uh Richard Moller the guy who set up Savo Trust um had the idea that it'd be great to put together a book um 
you know, old photos of these big tuskers uh, that they could just use it to communicate, show people what it is they were trying to save. And uh, it was very fortunate, really, that he was then introduced to me and we then hatched this plan for me to go to Savo and photograph these big tuskers. And, um, yeah, we used a lot to get enough variety for a whole book. You know, there's lots of different types of photos that I then ended up taking a lot of long lens stuff, um, to find the tuskers. It was a lot of flying from the air. So some aerial stuff. And then when we found them from the air going in on the ground to try and get more intimate stuff and for it, for you know, big tusker elephants in particular, beetle cam was the perfect tool to get, a you know, that, that perspective that really has these you know, animals towering over the camera with these tusks sweeping down towards the camera. It was like, it I always comes made. back to beetle cam. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> I, I ended up returning to beetle cam for that. And so those are for me, some of my favorite photos from the project are of those, uh, yeah, big tuskers with, with beetle cam, but then, yeah, they, what they wanted was, was a book. So, you know, the project didn't stop with getting the photos. It then, um, I basically then fulfilled my side of the bargain by then putting them together into the book. And this is a book I did totally by myself from everything from, you know, the layout and dealing with the printers and getting it printed. And then the, the, the challenge of getting it these books out to Kenya for them to use, <laughs> which, oh my gosh, that was, a, that's not a story, and a complete nightmare, but got there in the end. And so, um, yeah, it, and it was, I guess for me, it was a dream, dream opportunity to work with them to actually just have access to these tasks. Cause for me, that's what made it all worthwhile. And, you know, for them, uh, they got what they wanted out of it, which was a, a book that they could use and photos that they could use. And so I think that's how yeah, any photographer can approach relationships with uh, conservationists is, you know, don't look at, you know, you might be a working photographer wanting to make your living from photography, but I don't look at these organizations as you know, potential income. It's very much, what can I do for you? And, and, uh, how can I support what you're doing? Cause these guys are the, I guess the real heroes in terms of what they're doing. Yeah. You know, we can you know, try and uh, take action or whatever, but these, these are the guys to the support because these are the guys who are making the real impact. Um, and yeah, so, um, that was, uh, a, a, I guess a, quite, quite a turning point for me. That project is now really, uh, working on these long-term book projects, um, has become pretty much all I, all I want to do really is one book project after the next and, and yeah, put in as long as required to do, to do that justice. Yeah. And we were talking about that o over lunch, how, um, thankfully, you know, the digital revolution didn't kill the need for coffee table books yeah. and yeah, which is good. You know, I've just printed one with yeah, Neil and Andy, of course, of course. A great book. If you haven't <laughs> seen it yet. <laughs> Thanks for the plug, Will. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think, well, from our perspective, you know, we were under no illusion that everybody who hates foxes is going to read our book and then love them. But I think like you were talking about that collaborative effort where you've got this vast array of skills yeah. to create engaging images. That is what captures yeah. people's attention in the first instance. And if then the Savo Trust can put out a really nice book or report yeah. or, or, or social media post with yeah. powerful imagery, exactly. those split seconds where, like you mentioned earlier, when you're scrolling through these days, it's just noise, isn't it? Yeah. If you can capture people's attention Definitely. on a phone screen of an image that's you know yeah. tiny, then you know that's that's the beginning, isn't it? And then yeah. they might go on end to read or support or give exactly. money to. And I often think it's you know we we are surrounded by so much negative news and biodiversity crisis and and um, uh, you know climate crises 
that that it, it, it is really tough to kind of think about okay so what difference you know really are we yeah. making <clears throat> but I've learned over the years that it is always a collaborative definitely. effort and that photographers and images are a very small part, an important part, definitely, but a very small part, yeah. you know, once with sound science and with other media yeah. organizations and people putting stuff out, whether it's photo festivals or, or, or yeah. books or campaigns that we, we do play a role, but yeah, we're definitely, definitely not the most important. No. But, and that's the thing, though. Every species or conservation organization have different challenges that they're facing where we can potentially help. So as you say, with foxes, it might be a PR problem and producing a book that makes people fall in love with foxes might be the best way we can help as photographers. Um, another project I did, pretty much the first big conservation project I did uh, was with Ethiopian wolves. And there was a case of making a book which we could sell to raise funds to support the the conservationists in you. So that was a different way that we helped. Yeah. And so yeah, I think that's, what it, that's what's so key is really going to the conservationists and figuring it out what it is they need for yeah. us and then and then trying to make that work and very much like you know what margot's been doing for the last six seven years yeah. again it's just you know ra raising money using these creative platforms like kickstarter for frontline exactly. conservation yeah um yeah it's uh it, I, I think it's important not to kind of get bogged down by the pressure of like, um you know that we all have to do be conservation photographers you know first of first and foremost work on your craft, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm moving into the sort of education side of things because it's something that we talk about a lot um, is, you know, for the next generation. Um, I, I, I've, I've certainly experienced that by speaking to younger people who are into nature photography and, and, and struggling with what they want to do or what they yeah. want to achieve with, the photo <clears throat> with, with their images. But what would your advice be in, 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 in that instance for someone who, you know, looks at your work, admires it, wants to try and get into helping um organizations with yeah. really good pictures where you know where, where would they start yeah well, i think there's two things there firstly it's the and this is something i fell in the trap to the trap of uh, sort of doing when i was getting started is is not focusing and flitting from this to that yeah all these bucket list things i wanted to photograph and go there for two weeks tick that off and go on to the next thing but what i've since I guess discovered the hard way is that really there's no substitute for just focusing on a subject or a place, you know, an animal, whatever it is, and making that subject your own. You know, we can all set our work apart from everyone else just by focusing and doing it in more depth and and uh, spending more time on it than anyone else has done. And uh, I think it particularly, uh, yeah, if you don't have the opportunities to travel a lot, you know, finding a subject close to home a conservation organization close to home that you can partner with and then yeah really just focusing on it and uh, and creating a body of work with depth and that has a lot of benefits to your own photography as well because once you've taken i think i mentioned it before but once you've taken those easy shots that's when you're forced to become much more creative and imaginative and uh push yourself to get you know, to continue getting new images and that's what raises your photography to the next level so by focusing i think you can do the most good for whoever you've partnered with and uh, ultimately that's what then leads to you um yeah producing these body of works that are much more noteworthy in themselves and that then stands you in good stead to then make your next project perhaps further afield or slightly more ambitious but um but i think it does you know it whatever it is you're focusing on how, how close to home or how little the subject uh, it is creating that body of work with depth that is key. Yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, 
again, while I'm kind of looking around your office and thinking about contraptions, thinking about you prototyping, we looked at your 3D printer next door. Um, I was curious how you maximize your efficacy. Also, you've got two young children <laughs> and a wife and, you, yeah. you know, you're going to Africa a lot. Have you got yeah, things, do you, you know, you feel like you're spinning plates? Are, <laughs> yeah. you, are you good at saying, okay, I'm going to do contraptions for a couple of hours this morning, then I'm going to process images, yeah, well, then I'm going to, you know, think about my next projects. How do you... I mean, yeah, if you've got any secrets or tips here. Yeah, well, this is what... Yeah. Um, <laughs> See, this is my excuse yeah. for running these podcasts is so I can meet all these yeah, great yeah. photographers and, and, and steal um, their, their, their ways yeah. of working. I think that's my biggest struggle is definitely what to prioritize and what to spend my time on because, yeah, time is literally the one thing you know, can never really have enough of. Um, so I've sort of now... It, it took a long time to get to where I am now, like, Five years ago, when I first had kids, I, I hardly travelled. I hardly took a photo because Camp Traptions was new and it needed it needed me to run. So step by step, though, um, recognizing that, and then I brought my brother on, who basically now runs that, which freed me up to make, uh, to sort of leave Camp Traptions unattended uh, more and more uh, you know, for more and more of the year. Um, so I think very much having an end goal in mind, and just, even if it takes a while to get there, step by step, moving in the right direction, and so recognizing if you need to free up time or delegate or or stop doing stuff and i think learning to say no once i i think in the early days of you know being a photographer you do say yes to everything and you have time to say yes to everything because frankly otherwise you're just sitting there twiddling your thumbs so yeah you get to a stage though where you reach a point where you do have to start saying no which doesn't come naturally and feels like you're missing out on opportunities but i think kids are what made that you know flick the switch there for me and that suddenly i did realize you couldn't do everything and so I guess not being tempted, you know, I'd love to go photograph polar bears, but actually that's going to come at the expense of this book project I'm working on or, you know, traveling away from the kids or whatever. So, you know, knowing that one day maybe I'll get to it, but right now focusing on this one project I'm doing. Um, and, um, yeah, and leaving certain things for another day. And now the way that I, I guess, structure my, um, uh, the way I work is when I'm in Africa, focus 100% on the photos. I literally try and ignore everything else. My emails like literally stop responding for, for, for weeks on end. There's a big backlog, but you know, obviously maybe things slip through the cracks, but uh, that allows me to at least, you know, put 100% into my photos and to getting the, those doing that justice. When I'm in the UK, I hardly take a photo. It's 100% the business, uh, the other stuff that goes into it, photo processing, whatever it is. Um, but I'm not, I haven't got projects on the go here so much that are tearing me away from that and making me, you know, confusing what it is in my head I should be doing at this time. And so I find that splitting my, splitting my two hats, I guess, uh, the business hat and the photography hat into what I do when I'm in Africa and what I do when I'm here is for me, what makes most sense. Um, yeah, during COVID, I did a little bit of photography in the UK just because I, got itchy yeah but, you need to practice as well i mean i often talk about possibly, like yeah. practicing an instrument and if you yeah you know, if you didn't pick up the guitar for a few weeks you'd yeah. be rusty so oh and certainly in those early days where you're learning the craft and yeah take photos as much as you can as often as you can because yeah that's all that's all you need to do to to keep progressing but yeah nowadays uh, where you've got to compromise and pick what you do uh, that's how i tend to do it <laughs> that's great and yeah saying no is uh yeah learning to say no is, a, is an art isn't it and a craft Definitely. in itself and yeah yeah valuing your time and um certainly kids stop the procrastination and help you focus when you do you know grab 
grab time when you're lucky enough to get bits and pieces of childcare here and there. Exactly. Um, we're going to slowly come to an end. I've got a few more questions. And first of all, I mean, you talked about this current project and you recently returned from Kenya just last Friday, right? So yeah. can you talk a little, about, a little bit about that? Yeah. So my, I guess my big project at the moment, which has actually been a year and a half already that I've been working on it, is a book on lions. I went from the black leopard, pretty much the rarest animal I'll ever photograph. And I was like, where do I go from here? And I decided not to try and find anything as rare again. <laughs> I'll go the opposite. I'll go to lions, a very well photographed subject, uh, but try and, uh, I guess, yeah, do it, um, do it a bit different and do something that would justify a new book on them. And so uh, doing a lot with lions at night, uh, trying to convey that side of their lives because essentially lions do most of what they do at night so yeah really focusing on that and so most of my trips over the last two years have been uh, uh, mostly focusing on lions in the Mara and Serengeti uh, with a view to doing a book on that but yeah to do lions justice I'm not going to rush this and I think it's going to be still I've still got quite a few shots I still want to try and tick off so I'm not going to sort of uh, push myself to finish this project until I feel like I have done it justice. So I reckon probably another year or two uh, working on this before I'm ready to That's great. release them. Yeah, if you don't have the pressure of a publisher breathing down your neck. Yeah, which um, I don't yet. <laughs> yeah, um, that's fabulous. Um, yeah. That was going to be my next question: is you know, what, what do, do are you good at? Um, you know, putting on self self imposed deadlines. I guess you a lot of the driving force comes from the gut, doesn't it? The feeling yeah. of like, okay, I've got you know, have I got yeah. enough? Have I got enough? Variety. I think I'm probably a person that's quite bad at finishing a project because I can always see more that I could do. Fortunately, the last two book projects, like the elephant one, they needed a book. I needed to finish it and get the book done and given to them you know, in a reasonable space of years. So uh, that sort of pushed me to finish that. And then the Black Leopard project really was came to an end for me because COVID happened. I couldn't get out there. I had the time to do the book. And so I drew a line under there. Um, otherwise, I think I would still be going photographing this flat leopard yeah, because it's uh, <laughs> such a dream subject. Yeah, this lion one's going to be hard because there's no no pressure to end it. And so I think I, there's a few shots which are, if I tick them off, I think I'll be happy. And I think I'll know I'll have enough variety to do this book justice. But yeah, if I don't get them, I might just keep going until <laughs> who knows when <laughs> I'll be uh, still at it in 10 years. Time. Yeah. And I'm curious as well, you know, I, I, I always you know, when I think about you, I just think about camera traps and you leaving all these cameras out in the field. Obviously, there's risk of them getting trashed by animals or stolen yeah. or whatever else. So you also, um, you know, can you give us an idea of how much time you're actually behind the lens yourself? Say, for example, this lion project. You know? Yeah. Well, all these projects, I'm behind the lens a fair bit in that with the camera traps, even I would go out. If I was out in Kenya for a month, I might spend three days at the beginning moving the camera traps around. Then I go away for a week, do something else long lens handheld photography, um, then go back, pop into the camera traps. And so, yeah, I've al al always got a camera. And if it, even if the project I'm working on is a camera trap project, um, I'll be doing other things with, with the handheld camera in between. Um, lines is a great subject because yeah, sunrise, sunset, I can be doing long lens stuff, you know, at any time there could be interesting behavior or hunt or something where you need to get the long lens out quickly. Uh, but then also they're often just sitting there and that gives you opportunities to do, uh, yeah, other stuff and beetle cam photos and star photos, all sorts of stuff like that. And one of the big things I'm doing, I've started doing with this project, trying to get natural lion behavior at night without impacting it, um, involve, obviously you can't start shining lights if they're hunting because it will impact the hunt. So 
I'm trying to do quite a bit in infrared with infrared floodlights, infrared converter cameras, literally working in pitch black, trying to, <laughs> it's, it's what I was doing the last, last week was I've got subject in front of me, an infrared spotlight that's really focused to make quite a nice, attractive lighting. But I basically find my whole, whole time, like trying to wave this infrared beam that I can't see with my own eyes around, trying to find the lion in it and uh, take the photo. It's quite, it, yeah, this is going to, it's going to be a challenge. It sounds like you need an assistant for this one. <laughs> oh, I, did, I sort of had one as well, but oh, it's, uh, but anyway, it's figuring out stuff like that. And I think it's not being, trying to go out for two weeks and get that shot and tick it off straight away. It's like going out, testing this equipment and this concept, definitely failing the first time or even the first few times, but every time going out with the learnings from the last trip and iterating, trying to solve these problems and trying again and persevering. And so yeah, there was these particular shots I was trying to get with the lions and stars. The first time, you know, the first trip didn't work. The second trip didn't work. It was on the third trip. Then finally figured out the the right combination of equipment and yeah. time of year and everything to, then, to get, get the shot. And yeah, so yeah, just uh, keep plugging it, away. It's great to hear. I mean, you know, Neil, who's been a brilliant influence and, and he's also very generous with his techniques for, he's been doing camera trapping for nine years. Yeah. Um, he talks about that is that it's, it's very much every time you go out, you're just narrowing that margin. I mean, there's always going to be errors, but the more times you go through and refine that setup, yeah. then the less chances that you'll make a mistake and then you're just more than relying on the the chance and luck of the animal breaking that beam at the right time and exactly um but yeah it's definitely an exercise i mean that, that's the thing about wildlife took it's hard enough as it is you know when you're just behind the lens and there's beautiful light but when you're you know leaving stuff out there and relying on flashes and, and everything <laughs> else and actually I, i'd forgotten to ask you this um because it comes up quite a lot and i'm sure you've been asked it lots in the past um is about you know in wildlife competitions you get a lot of what i have would describe sort of traditional wildlife photographers complaining about <laughs> you know camera trap photographs winning all the awards yeah. now and it's not really proper photography they weren't behind uh, the camera <laughs> they're the people that would have been 10 years ago complaining about digital cameras and then being cheating and not being true photography and so i think you always get people and i'll be there one day where i can't you know feel like i don't want to keep having to learn new stuff and evolve with the times but you know that's the thing it's particularly wildlife photography i think is very um dependent on the technology really when you're trying to photograph animals that don't want to be photographed and often needing to be as unobtrusive as possible technology is the thing that can give you that um i guess that way in and that that sort of um your edge over the subject or to get the shot you want and so i think Wildlife photography in particular is a case of you know, moving with the times. You see it in wildlife filmmaking as well, how critical the latest camera technology is to every new film that comes out uh, really as a way to set set what you're producing apart from what's come before. And so I don't think there's any any getting around the fact that you have to be uh, yeah, moving with the... I mean, I, I in a way. I mean, also there are opportunities, particularly in the wildlife competitions, to just have that creative eye and be creative. But you always then, yeah battling against um against the technology yeah. yeah that's right i mean i i've i've thought now that i've you know felt the pain of camera traps and i didn't have that attitude before but i i think <laughs> actually probably most of the people that are complaining about it have never actually oh used gosh. one <laughs> and it's so creative from the lighting you know it's all pure photography the way you light it the way you compose it you know you're composing it knowing where the animal will be pretty precisely so all the same principles apply as normal photography it's just you've then got the battle of yeah weatherproofing and making sure it r runs reliably and all these the he headaches power 
power consumption of everything and all those headaches that go into camera trapping <laughs> on top of normal photography. So yeah, I certainly don't see it as any less of an art form. No, definitely more. Um, so what about the future? Are you someone that thinks five, 10, 15 years ahead? Have you got any hopes, wishes and dreams? Uh, that's a good I mean, question. you could have retired after getting that image of the black <laughs> well, Yeah, You would have thought so, but nobody paid that much. For <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I mean, for me, there's a lot of book projects I have, you know, a list of things I'd love to do projects on, and each one of them represents a two-year commitment or something. So I think just go working through these, uh, yeah, these projects uh, is pretty much my plan for the foreseeable future as long as I'm able to. And um, yeah, c continuing to keep one eye on technology and what that's opening up in terms of possibilities. Uh, but yeah, finish this Lion project in the short, medium, or maybe long term. Who knows how long that'll take? And then yeah, moving on to the next one. And at the same time, uh, continuing to uh, evolve the contraption stuff and make that more accessible and easier for people to use. Because yeah, it's very rewarding also seeing all the creative stuff that customers are doing, the stuff that I obviously wouldn't be able to do myself, have time to do, have access to. So yeah, seeing what other people are doing with these with this equipment and putting it to good for you know conservation purposes as well is very rewarding. So um, yeah, splitting my time between those two goals really. That's brilliant. And yeah, a great place to end. Will, thank okay. you so much. Yeah, thank you. It's been really great fun um, talking to yes. you and, and, and seeing your office. Oh, and actually, just very quickly, because I read um, uh, that Beetle Cam is how old now? 10, 12 oh, it, years? No, it was 2009. So it's now like, yeah, 12, 13, yeah. 13 years coming. So what about the future of Beetle? I mean, that's something you've always <laughs> gone back to, it seems. Well, so future. now it's like a little bit of a, it's quite advanced now. It's a bit of a tank. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I guess cameras get smaller as a trend. Uh, high quality cameras. So yeah, if I can make beetle cameras smaller and smaller as cameras uh, you know, get smaller and better quality, that will maybe allow me to make it even less uh, of a pain to transport around. So yeah, <laughs> I think now it's just, yeah, getting it as small as possible will be the thing. Brilliant. Well, look, we'll get some shots and um, we'll put them up on the page and um, yeah, we'll get this out to as, as, as far and as wide as possible. Mm. Thank you so yeah, much for your time. You. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Will. What an inspiration. And what I love about Will is just how much he shares about his process, techniques, and approach to always try and elevate the picture to inspire. And he certainly inspires me. So there's no excuse. Check out all the links to his YouTube channel, website, Instagram, and Camtraptions. All of this equipment is, by photography standards, very affordable. And it's just about putting in the time. So if you haven't, I strongly suggest giving it a go. It's really good fun, hugely frustrating, but really good fun. Um, and yeah, you can check out all of these links by heading over to the podcast page. And also please help us to share these podcasts and the stories behind the work of all my amazing guests. Thank you so much and see you next time. Mm -hmm.